I know most of you probably did not like geometry in school. I, I, I get it, sort of, because I love geometry. But I'm assuming you all know what a triangle is. I won't, I won't get all technical and ask you if you know what an equilateral triangle is. An equilateral triangle, look at, an equilateral, it's the birthday girl, so I can't be picking on her. An equilateral triangle is exactly what it says, equal. All three sides are equal. So what I want to ask you to do is to have that equilateral triangle in your mind's eye, okay? Because what that equilateral triangle is going to do for at least this week and maybe the weeks to come as well is represent the relationships that form the Christian life, your life, if you're in Christ. The triangle, very simply, when you look at it, has God at the top. Clearly, that's the primary relationship that a Christian has. It is with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. There's no more important relationship in all of the world, and I don't mean to offend strong marriages and strong families, but if you're bound more tightly to your spouse than you are to God, then we need, we need a little bit of a work on priorities. And that's an honoring thing to say to you. It's not dishonoring by any stretch of the imagination. Now you're, now you're asking, how about those other angles? What are they all about? Well, and the other angle down here on your left is the relationship with one another. The one another's are all over the New Testament. And this is where we're going to be going today. We saw in Romans 12, 1 and 2, our relationship with God. In view of God's mercies, offer yourselves to him as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing unto him. This is your spiritual, I don't like that word there, this is your rational, your thinking, engaged worship. This is what you do when you're created in the image of God. And now we transition, and notice how the transition flows out of our relationship with God. So this angle here on, my, on your left hand is our relationship with one another. And we'll be spending a week or two looking at our relationship with one another and how that forms us. The other relationship that we have is the relationship to the world. And we're going to see that in the back half of Romans 12 and the beginning of Romans chapter 13. Now, I don't know if Paul, learned it in, 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 in Greek ways, uh, had a triangle in his mind when he wrote this, but it works really, really well. It's exactly how it's designed from our relationship with God, that informs our relationships with one another, namely within the church. And it also informs our relationship to the world. How do we engage with our enemies? How do we engage with those who disagree with us? How do we engage with the government? Because Romans 13, 1-7 is all about that. It's all about what our relationship as Christians and citizens dual citizenship, if you please, in this world. How are we supposed to act? That's coming, God willing, in a couple of weeks. But for now, I want to I angle in. You see what I did there, right? I want to angle in here and talk, at least this week, about what our relationships are to one another. And this is what Paul would have us look at based on the way he has structured Romans chapter 12. I want to reiterate that our relationship with one another, Romans 12, 3 to 8, flow from Romans 12, 1 and 2. You and I don't know how to relate to one another, biblically speaking, if we don't understand how God wants us to relate to him through his mercies. 
I hope that that's a clear enough image for you, and I hope that you're not breaking out into hives because I said the word geometry, or I'm asking you to think about triangles, especially an equilateral one. You're thinking, what was the formula for the angles and the sides if they're equal and so on and so forth? You don't have to worry about that. This is a theological, a biblical triangle and nothing more than that. The apostle and pastor, as we've seen, Paul, may or may not, as I said, have had a triangle in his mind when he wrote Romans 12, but it's real easy to diagram that way, and I've already explained that to you. So last week in verse 3, we spent a whole teaching session introducing Paul's theme of personal humility. And we left last week by uh, setting up this phrase that corporate unity flows from personal humility. You really can't have one without, without the other. Corporate unity flows from personal humility. And this is what we're going to see in verses 4 to 8. Or say it another way, personal humility is the way to corporate unity. So, so work the formula. If there is disunity in the body of Christ, there's a great likelihood that there's a lack of humility. That's, that's pretty fair to assume. Somewhere along the lines, and my years in ministry bears that out. Where there's been disunity, there's been more pride than there has been humility. Or to say it another way, personal humility is proven in relationship to one another. Let me say that again. Personal humility is proven in the crucible, if you please, or in relationship to one another. It's true in our marriages and our families. It's especially true in the body of Christ. And that is our primary theme this morning. We are one, one body in Christ. And I want to spend some time unpacking that, okay? So we're going to look at Romans 12, 3 to 8, and simply unpack this, we are one body in Christ, and show how personal humility is proven in relationship uh, to one another. Look with me, if you please, at Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. This is what we spent an entire session on last week. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. We made the point that that little word for connects it with 12, 1 and 2. So Paul has given us the big banner theme in 12, 1 and 2, and now he's going to give us the details on that. Out of your relationship with God and view of his mercies, this is now how you're going to relate to others. Humility, as I said then, then and today, is countercultural. And I made the passing comment last week about how outstanding a person you would be if you displayed humility in our world today. Because right now, humility is not ranking very highly on personal character meters almost anywhere you look. So it is, as it was back in the first century Rome, countercultural. I quoted Michael Byrd, the Australian Bible teacher, and said humility was for inferiors in first century Rome. A a, a culture very much like our own, where you're given bonus points for being proud, you're you're given bonus points for working your way up the ladder and being hyper-competitive and go get them. Those aren't necessarily altogether bad, but if it causes you to do harm to others, 
or to think of yourself as only your pay grade, then we have a problem. It is into that world and ours that Paul writes, Romans chapter 12. Notice by Paul's call uh, to everyone, I made that point last week, that it's not just It's not just the elites that he's talking to in these Roman house churches. It's not just the weak. It's not just the strong. It's a word for everyone. So what Paul's doing is leveling the playing field. Try to... to Paul's leveling the playing field. So in these house churches, you've got the rich and the poor. You've got masters and you've got servants. You've got men and women. You've got children. And Paul says everyone ought to think of themselves less highly than the other. Think of yourself with right thinking. He's redundant. Think of yourself with sober judgment. So he levels the playing field. And you can imagine the cough, cough that might have occurred in some of those houses or the conversations in homes after they left those meetings. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul putting me on the same plane as that one? And like I said sarcastically last weekend, and I repeat myself sarcastically this week, I'm so glad all of that died in the first century. We don't have to worry about any of that in the 21st century. Personal humility is the way to corporate unity. It neutralizes power and privilege. This is why this is an extraordinary political statement that Paul is making, right into the teeth of the emperor and the empire that is Rome at this point in time. The strong and the weak are neutralized. And a new reality is created so that when you come into the church, when you become a member of the body of Christ, the rules of the world don't always apply. In fact, the coming of the kingdom turns an awful lot upside down. You live in Christ by dying. You become great by serving others. You don't get points for that out there. It's the way here. And Jesus modeled it for us. Love so amazing. Jesus, Messiah. Personal humility is the way to corporate unity, and it is proven in relationship to one another. Jackson W., it's a Sunna name. Uh, He is a missionary and teacher in East Asia, where he's been for more than 20 years. Uh, Great writer, uh, but he goes by this pseudonym. Uh, because he can't reveal his identity because he's in a dangerous place in East Asia. He's written uh, a wonderful devotional uh, on the book of Romans from an Asian perspective. And it's very, very helpful because they tend to think more, generally speaking, more collectively than individualistically. This is what Jackson W. writes. He says, an individualistic mindset that loses sight of the community makes us prone to pride, focusing attention on our differences by emphasizing, as Paul does, personal distinction apart from one's role in a community, we forsake the humbling benefits that come by recognizing our similarity with one another within the body of Christ. So what Jackson is saying, if if you're so self-centered and focused and individualistic, and it's the air that we breathe, This is why do not be conformed to the pattern of this age, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind is such a whopper in our present culture and so difficult because, like I've said, it's like asking a fish to describe water. It's like asking a bird to describe air. 
It's a very difficult thing and why we need one another to be able to look in from a different perspective and say, hey, do you know that these things seem to be going on in your life and that doesn't seem to be the way that the Lord would have things go? So what Jackson W. from an East Asian perspective is writing and saying, we lose sight of the community that God is seeking to build when all we do is focus on the individual. And this passage particularly uh, comes at that very clearly. So corporate unity is our relation, as proven in our relationship to one another is now where Paul takes us, uh, beginning in verse 4. Paul's a good pastor, he's a good missionary, and what he does regularly, and I try to point this out to you, is that he, he grabs elements within his own culture uh, so that he gets points of recognition with the people with whom he's, he's, he's teaching and spending time, and he's adept at using these elements of his immediate surroundings and transforming them for his purposes. Now watch how he does it in these verses right here in Romans 12. He does it in verses 4 and 5 when he uses everyday language that was used to describe groups within society that were united around a common cause or interest. Verse 4 of Romans chapter 12, for as in one body, that was a very common word, particularly in Greek culture, in Roman culture in the first century. Everybody and his brother used the word body. Everybody was part of a body. They were a guild. They were trade unions. You all, you had around a common cause. You were together. And the language that was used was body. For as in one body, we have many members. And people would have immediately identified with this. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm with the uh, carpenters union, and I'm different from Joe, but we're all one because we have this common, this thing in common that binds us together. So Paul's going to take this, and he's going to run it through the in Christ uh, matrix and make it entirely something different. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, verse 5, so we, though many, see, there's the pivot. So we too. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So Paul's grabbing that language, which everybody in those Roman house churches were, oh, I know exactly what it is that he's talking about right now. Oh, and now he's one-upping that by saying, oh, so that applies to our gatherings. And I get it now. You can see the lights going on. So in the same way, I'm in this union with my pals because we're all carpenters. Whoa, now we have Jesus in common. And so though I do not lose my identity, per se, my personality, I flourish within that community just like I do in the union. It's an amazing thing that Paul's doing here. It's a brilliant move. As in one body, we have many members. The members do not all have the same function. You see what he's doing? Look at the words carefully. One body, many members, not all have the same function. So beware of any Christian ministry, parachurch or church, that, that wants you to conform and have everybody look exactly the same or sound the same. That's more a mark of a cult than it is a church of Jesus Christ. You will never hear me say to you that you all must behave in exactly the same way, that you all must be like me or anything like that. No, no, no. I want to, I re, I want to recognize how God has created you and the gifts that he's given to you, and I want you to flourish in that 
as part of the community. Yo, that I will press. Sure, but I'm not going to make you robots. I want to understand fully how it is that God has designed you and the gifts that he's given to you that you can exercise. It is a diverse membership, creatively and corporately united. It's really easy to come up with illustrations along these lines. Think of a baseball team. Uh, I, I tend to think sports first. I know it's not everybody's thing, but you think a baseball team. Everybody in the room knows what a baseball team is like. What would a baseball team be if everybody wanted to be the pitcher? Well, it wouldn't be a baseball team, or in my case, a catcher. What if nine people wanted to be catchers? Can't you see it all now? Here are nine people lined up behind home plate with all of the gear on, and there's nobody else anywhere else. That's not a baseball team. Those of you who might work better in music categories, think of an orchestra. What would an orchestra be if everybody wanted to play the violin? It wouldn't be an orchestra. What, what if everybody wanted to be the first chair? I can only assume that a lot of people want to be the first chair. But like I said last week, you know, one of the true ways to know your level of humility is how well you do when you play, wait for it, second fiddle. You're the only fiddle, John, so. But you can see how that works. Creativity, uniting disparate gifts to make one sound. The same is true of the body of Christ. Each and every one of you. You might play the piccolo. You might play the oboe. You might smash a cymbal. But you're all needed. You're all needed in order to make that orchestra function to be the best that it can be to its grand design to make beautiful, harmonious, creative music. We make such beautiful music together. So we, verse 5, though many are in one body. See, now he just turns it around. So we, though many are in one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And I just want to do the same thing with that verse. So we, see the group, though many are one body, members of one another. Two English translations say we belong to each other. I love that. The word belong isn't there. The, the original language just literally reads, literally reads members, one another. So anything you put in between those, you've got a supply. Belonging to one another is perfectly uh, fitting given the context. That's what translators do. They look at the context and say, what more needs to be put in there to give a greater understanding? You read the ESV, it doesn't, it doesn't supply that word. It just simply says, individually, members, one of another. That's a more literal reading. The NIV, the New Living Translation, for example, insert the word belong, and we belong with one another. I love that. I love that. It's one of those push back your chair from your desk at home kind of moments. You know, I tell you, I do that every once in a while. I push back and I thought to myself, okay, I need to think about this for a second. What, what is it like for me to think, literally spend time thinking about belonging to you and you and you? What does that do to you if it doesn't begin a revolution in the way that you think about you? And us. What happens tomorrow morning if you wake up and think, I belong to each and every one of those people in that room? Here's the wild thing. 
the wild thing is that this is not just some thought experiment. That's the truth. If you're anything like me, it makes you a little uncomfortable. And the level of discomfort is pressing on your individualism. It's exactly what it did to me. I can feel the guards going up. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. And I know that some of you in the room will have similar struggles. Oh no, I'm not entrusting myself to anybody in this room. It's not gonna happen. That's mine. That's mine. Uh, yeah, this is my church, but I'm not, I'm not giving anything up. Be careful. Be careful. A diverse membership, creatively and corporately united. Now, I have to ask this question. What is it that unites us? I use the example of the Carpenters Guild, the Carpenters Union. What unites the carpenters is wooden nails. Two, arguably, two of the most important words in all of the Bible, right here in this verse, tell us what unites us. Somebody tell me what the two words are. In Christ. In Christ. In Christ. I have books on my shelf at home, three, four hundred pages long, just on in Christ and where it is in the scriptures. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. Highlight it, underline it, circle it, do something with it, please. Because what ends up happening is that if you move off that mark, then you end up having a cult of personality. And one leader after another recently seems to be falling from grace. Why? Because they've got an outsized personality that people essentially worshipped. And I have told you for years in this pulpit that though my personality might be large, you have no right whatsoever to elevate me beyond a point. Yes, you should have high expectations of me. That is entirely within your biblical purview. But to worship me, but to elevate me so far that when I let you down, not if, but when I let you down, your world crashes, or because I haven't said what you wanted me to say, you, you decide that you're leaving without telling anybody just because, that's not healthy. That's not in Christ, which is why I will all day long let you look at me. So long as you understand that when you look at me, all I'm doing is pointing you to Jesus. If you only look at me and you don't see Jesus, the game's over. I will let you down. It's only a matter of time. I won't try to, but a room even of this size will eventually have someone or more than someone in it that doesn't like the way I dealt with that verse. 
or the thing that I said about that person or didn't say about that person. One of my very first mentors set me up in a very profound way when he disabused me of any idea that I'm going to make everybody happy all of the time. It sounds obvious, but it got drilled into me literally from the first day I began to sense the call to ministry in my life. And it has hardly been a month in my years in ministry where that simple truth has not served me well. Because I want people to like me. Who doesn't? Anybody wake up this morning and say, gee, I hope everybody doesn't like me today. I mean, there, there may be some of you for whom that's a jolly. It's not for me. But it, I've got to be careful, too, that I don't become fearful of man or that I don't idolize you and I start shaving this to make them happy. Thankfully, that's one of the few things I've never been accused of. But it doesn't give me the right to allow you to elevate me to the point. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you've been around a block or two in the Christian world, you know that 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is the chapter. It's the chapter in the Bible on spiritual gifts and the body metaphor. It's where Paul explains it most fully in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 17. He says, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God, I want you to see God here, please. God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. Highlight that, because if you're sitting here now and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're where you need to be. You've been given what you need to, be, to have been given so that you can make a contribution to this body. That's not an accident. God ordained. So if you've got a low view of who you are, if you've got a low view of this church, if you've got a low view of the gift or gifts that you have, let's press pause on that and, and walk it back a little bit and meditate and spend time on a passage like this that tells me and you that everything that's going on for you right now is ordained of the Lord. Let's not begrudge God because you didn't get gift A when he gave you B. By design, he said, child, this is yours. Exercise it amongst this people for my glory and for their edification. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. See, this is the symphony. This is the baseball team. And Paul uses the literal physical body. If every part of your body was an eye, you wouldn't be a body. You'd be an eye. And I don't know what kind of world that would be. I'll leave that to the science fiction writers, I guess. And in verse 25 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care one for another. You see the leveling? You see the leveling there? It's not reducing everybody, but it's reminding everybody that personal humility is what leads to corporate unity. But it also means, dig in here with me, drill down with me. It also means that if you're sitting week after week after week on your pew muscles, it means that somewhere the body is atrophying. 
Ooh, now I'm meddling. So if for you, church is coming to hear me for 30 or 40 minutes, you've got a messed up view of what the church is. If you're afraid to put your hand up and say, I would like to participate, but I don't know where. Sorry, Mo. And, 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 I, and I don't know where. Work with us right now. It's a lot of work to be an elder. And elders are trying the very best they can to identify members of the body of Christ and what their gifts are and how to work all of that together. I know it might sound like meddling, but notice I'm calm and I'm not screaming at anybody. I'm not banging anything. I'm doing this because God's got blessing for you as you step out in faith and exercise the gift or gifts that he's given to you that he is not giving you until you do that. I need you. Let me say it plainly. I need you. Any member of the body of Christ needs to turn around and look at one another in this room right now and say, I need you. If you're picking it up and walking out, and I tell you all the time, the most disheartening words I hear every week is, see you next Sunday. We need one another. People don't often hear that from the pastor because he's Superman. The pastor doesn't need me. People get upset because I don't reach out to them all the time. And there's more than a little bit of me that wants to ask, why don't you reach out to me? Gee, I haven't heard from pastor in a couple of months. And rather than getting angry, why don't you say, hmm, I wonder if he's okay. I know I'm big. I know my personality is large. And I know I can be intimidating. But I lose sleep at night thinking, hmm, people are upset with me because I haven't reached out to them. It would have been wonderful if I had heard from somebody and said, hey, I haven't heard from you in a while. Are you okay? Like John, just this morning, asked me if I was okay. He asked me how, how my week was. Blessing to my soul. Now, it doesn't mean you have to flood me with calls and letters this week. I'm using it as a simple illustration of how interconnected we are, all of us, all of us. I literally need you. Jesus doesn't need you, but I do, as does the person sitting next to you and the person behind you and the person in front of you. Take that. Take that, church. Be encouraged by that because I know some of you sitting here thinking, I've, I, you know, Pastor, what in the world do I have to offer you? What in the world do I have to offer this one? What? Check that attitude because basically what you're saying is, God, you haven't, you haven't given me anything or you haven't, you've given me inadequate things. I don't think anybody in the room wants to do that. I don't think anybody watching out in streamland wants to think that. I don't think anybody wants to put their hand in God's face and say, you should have given me more or you should have given me less. No, God gave you what you have. And he gave you what you have amongst a group of folks like this for his honor and the edification of the body. A diverse membership that's creatively and corporately united in Christ. He moves, and this is where we'll pick it up next week, God willing. He moves in verse 6 to now talk about some of the specific gifts. 
Spiritual gifts appear in four places in the New Testament. It's very easy to remember. Two twelves and two fours. Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4. That's where spiritual gifts appear. The, list, the lists have overlap, but they're also different. Why? Not one of the lists is exhaustive. And typically, when Paul lists gifts, when Peter lists, lists gifts, it's addressing a need in that immediate context. So when Paul starts talking about prophecy and teaching and exhortation and service and, con and contributing and leading and doing acts of mercy, he, he's, he's got somebody in mind in Rome. He's not talking about tongues in Rome. It's not an issue. It is in Corinth, but it's not relevant for Rome. No, no, no. He's after some other things. He's after some gifts of words, and he's after some gifts of deeds. And God willing, we'll, we'll unpack those next week. We'll have a greater look at what these gifts are and how they work together in the body of Christ. Charles Octavius Booth, a Baptist pastor from the late 1800s, he was the founder of Dexter Avenue King Memorial Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. And he has written a wonderful little book called Plain Theology for Plain People. And he closes one section talking about gifts. And this is what he says. Listen how beautiful this is. What a glorious work that building, the house of God, the temple, that church will be when it's finished. And what a blessing, what a blessed privilege it is that every one of us, everyone, as the apostle says, has some gift from Christ to fit him for helping on its completion. Let everyone keep fixed in mind that thought that I am called by the blessed Jesus to help in building up his glorious house and seek daily grace and help so that he may build wisely and rapidly. Isn't that amazing? That's revolutionary. You wake up in the morning and think, I've been given something by Jesus himself to help build his church and bring it to completion. Let's go. Let's go. Tomorrow morning, get the brick and get the mortar and get the trowel. Let's go. Let's build something beautiful for Jesus. One amen? Just one amen? I'm working here, church. Paul's teaching on spiritual gifts have different emphases depending upon the immediate circumstances of the given church, something we'll explore more, God willing, next week. Let me leave you with this. The emphasis in each church might be different, this is always true of any teaching on God's gifts to his people. Their source is God's grace. Nobody has a gift given to them by God apart from God's grace. They're sovereignly distributed by the Holy Spirit. I've already showed you that in the First Corinthians passage, where it was the Spirit who orders things that the way they are. And third, in addition to the source being God's grace and the distribution by the Holy Spirit, their objective is the building up of the body of Christ. I'll come back to that, God willing, next week. That's why I also talk about myself the way that I do, sometimes in self-effacing ways, because if I'm not exercising my gifts to build up the body of Christ, 
then I'm an idolater. If, if I walk out of this room and hear nothing about accolades, about how wonderful an orator I am, then I have failed. If through my preaching you end up leaving here and saying, isn't God great? Then I've succeeded. When Cicero spoke, they said, my, what a beautiful orator. When Demosthenes spoke, they said, let's march. I want to march. I don't want your accolades. I want to march and build and become what it is that Christ has called us to. Ephesians 4.16, when each part is working properly, it makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Woo! And now we come to the table. What a beautiful sermon to lead to the table, right? No greater, there's no greater visual representation. There's no greater visual representation of these relational truths that we're speaking about here than the Lord's Supper. At the table, our Romans relationships come alive. Our relationship to God in Christ is at the table. Our relationship to one another is at the table. Our relationship to the world is at the table. I don't have to explain to you how this envisions our relationship to God. It is through the given, transfigured Son, Jesus Christ, that these elements are given to us. These elements don't save you, but they're monthly, weekly, daily reminders of what it is that He has done for you in the giving of His body and the shedding of His blood. Very clear to see how this represents our relationship to God. Keep that triangle in front of you because it's one loaf. That's why this is set up here so you see one loaf and one cup. We're not going to use this, but I want you to see the symbolism. And Paul's going to unpack this in detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when he talks about our oneness. That's why I'm, I'm a little bit old school and a little bit higher church on some of these things. That's why this way of doing communion to me is nearly ideal. Because this is what Jesus did on the night that he was betrayed. When he sat there, he took bread and he broke it. And he, he broke the. This is probably quite literally what he would have done. He broke it. And then he probably tore off pieces on some sort of plate or mat. And then he would have passed it around. And he said, here guys, take, take a piece of it. And they would, not, they would not have missed what it was that he was doing. From one, we are many. It's not trays with little bits broken up. I understand the functionality of that. But even those little bits that are broken up still come from one loaf. And so this, and I want you to see this in your mind's eye as we grab this little plastic thing that we're about to do in just a moment. I don't mean to be sacrilegious or crass. But I want you to see this. I want you to feel this. I want you to taste this. Because in the same way, after supper, he would do this. He took a, a cup. And someday I'll teach you on the Lord's Supper. It was the fourth cup. There were a series of cups in a meal, the Passover meal. It was the fourth cup in all likelihood, and it would have been referred to as the cup of blessing. And he took it, and he gave thanks. And then he passed that around. Again, they would not have missed it. We're, we're all drinking out of this cup, aren't we? 
Their hygiene and sanitation issues were a whole lot less than ours back in the first century. So for them, they would not have been thinking about it. Everybody in the room right now is going, ooh. But that's what they would have done. They would have held in their hands from their master a cup, and it was the cup of blessing. And they would have sipped the wine, probably real wine. And they would have passed it to the next one, and the next one. And Peter and James and John wanted to be the best, so they're passing it to somebody, and is that someone looking at them thinking, you really want to be the best, don't you? But we're holding the same cup, and we're eating from the same loaf. The relationship to the world is seen for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, when Paul says, insofar as you do this, you proclaim his death until he comes. Well, proclaim it to whom? Well, you're proclaiming it to one another, and you're reminding one another that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ is coming again. But it's also a message that's in your bones and that you're going to take out to that street. Right here. Right here. Our relationship to God, our relationship to one another, our relationship to the world. Right here in these elements.